Welcome to Arthroscopy Association's Arthroscopy Journal podcast. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal. Welcome, everyone. I'm Dr. Andrew Sheehan from the San Antonio Military Medical Center. Today, I'm excited to be talking to Dr. Andreas Gomal from the Hospital for Special Surgery. It's great to have him on the podcast to discuss his paper entitled Safety and Efficacy of an Amniotic Suspension Allograft Injection Over 12 Months in a Single-Blinded Randomized Controlled Trial for Symptomatic Osteoarthritis of the Knee, which can currently be accessed online as an article in press. Andreas, thanks so much for joining me. Welcome back to the podcast. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Great to be back. So to get things started, I've got a three-part question for you, so we're going to make it tough in a hurry. Why don't you explain the rationale behind using the amniotic suspension allograft? What is it? What is the proposed mechanism of action? And what do we already know about its clinical utility? <laughs> that does start fast and hot. Um, so amniotic suspension allograft, which doesn't really flow, um, this is sort of a better, more accurate term than than amniotic stem cells. I think overall this whole stem cell term is a little bit of a hype right now and, and clinical application has been getting too far ahead, I think, um, of the research that supports its use. So you see billboards with people advertising this, but then if you really look closely at are there stem cells in any of these and what does it even mean to be a stem cell, um, I think this is a much better name because it's just descriptive. It's an allograft. It's it's amnion, and the suspension comes from um, that this is really amniotic membrane that is made into a powder, and it's suspended in amniotic fluid. There are a few amniotic cells in there that survive cryopreservation, but the mechanism of action, to answer your, your next question, it's really the anti-inflammatory properties, more of protein contained in in the amniotic membrane than than anything that I would say sort of our understanding of a stem cell is. So it's really the anti-inflammatory properties that uh, are the, the proposed mechanism of action for this. And what do we know about clinical utility? Um, amniotic tissues or birth tissues overall have been used for close to 100 years, and it's actually our friends, the, the ophthalmologists, have been using that for a long time for the treatment of corneal ulcers. And they noticed that if you just take amniotic membrane, you cut out a piece and you lie that down on, on a corneal ulcer or a burn wound or a diabetic ulcer, they heal better. And you know, this was all not very academic people did it, noticed it works, and did more of it. And, uh, and then that at some point trickled over into our current application using it for, for inflammatory conditions in knee, namely arthritis. So why don't you give us an overview of how you and your co-investigators went about setting the study up? Yeah, we were a, a little worried. So I was, I was involved in, in designing the study um, so we were a little worried that after we had started the study that we sort of shot ourselves in the foot because we had set up the study to uh, to have a, a rescue arm um, at three months. And we did that mainly because we didn't know if this is going to work. And 
it's sort of hard to embark on a 12-month study and potentially torture patients with, well, you can't have any other intervention. You need to stick by this for 12 months without allowing them an out if, if their intervention doesn't work. So we, we designed this to be a randomized trial between saline HA and the amnion. Uh, randomized patients were blinded. And we followed patients pretty closely. And at three months, there was really a fairly simple question, and that was, are you improved enough that you are okay and you can continue in the study, or is your pain such that you need you need something else? So it was a, a fairly simple patient um, decision, not based on any objective criteria from other part that could be subject to, to bias. So we thought that was a, a pretty good study design, but then as we had started, then we thought about, well, maybe maybe patients want to game the study because people enrolled not to get a saline injection, they enrolled to get the cool, quote-unquote, stem cell injection. So we thought, well, what if at three months everyone just does the numbers and says, well, I had a one in three chance to get the cool stuff, but now if I say I want to be rescued, then I have a 100% chance of getting the injection with amnion because that was the rescue arm. So why don't I just say um, I don't do well and then, then I get the injection? But luckily, that's not what happens. So when we looked at the numbers, uh, almost three-quarters of patients in the, the comparison arms said, no, we're not, we're not good enough. We need something else. But almost the reverse, almost 70% of patients in the amniotic arm said, we are actually good. So even though they had the opportunity to game the system, they they did not. And that, I think, was one of the truly remarkable findings that we were pretty happy with was that, um, that patients actually were pretty satisfied and more so than in, well, the placebo, which we had assumed, but even with the quote-unquote standard of care, uh, which is HA. And then we kept following patients um, up to 12 months, and we followed them regardless what happened after. So if you stuck with your original group assignment through 12 months, we did that. And if you ended up in the rescue group, then three months became your new baseline, and then we followed you for 12 months, so a total of 15. That's smart the way that you guys set that up. And you already kind of started getting in a little bit, but why don't you go ahead and for the listeners, give us the give us the highlights. What are the main findings or, or takeaways from this paper that you want to get out there? Yeah, so I, I, one thing was, as mentioned, the sort of a very easy patient, did this work for me or, or didn't it at three months? And, and that was remarkably different. But then... We also looked at patients just with the coups and the, the ORC. Um, they have defined these responder criteria where if you fulfill their criteria, you, you are deemed a responder or a high responder. And, and that requires that you hit certain benchmarks in terms of improvement in pain, improvement in function. Um, so it goes a little bit more into the is this clinically significant versus uh, is it just statistically significant? And when we looked at these these responder rates, uh, so 
of uh, the amnion patients responded or were counted as responders uh, at 12 months, while the other two groups were 36 and, and 43%. So I think one of the surprising things always in all of these studies is that the control groups actually do remarkably well. And I have for years looked at all of these injection studies and have almost always been blown away of sort of how well saline actually does. And that's the same that we saw here. So, I mean, one in three patients responded to saline. And, um, but that is, that is true for all placebo-controlled trials, and that's a big challenge running these trials because your, your differences are comparatively small between your intervention group and your control group, but the, at least there was a clear separation, and that was both clinically relevant um, and statistically significant. And it was maintained out to 12 months. So if you look at the, uh, the PROs at three months, at six months, at 12 months, they, um, they really were maintained. And patients actually, in terms of pain, if you look at just VAS scores with the the amnion, they actually were better at, at 12 months than at six months, better at six months than at three months. So it, it really is remarkable what you can do if you get something anti-inflammatory going, swelling improves, pain improves, patients can work out a little bit more, get their strength up, and that's how they can maintain their their functions. And the other groups, they showed some improvement at three months, but kind of at six and 12 months that was lost. I think that's one of the really exciting things about this particular orthobiologic treatment is you know, we've seen a number of studies that have previously been published that would suggest that the durability of these things might be somewhat suspect. And so as you as you suggest there, I think your results are, are really interesting in the fact that it, it seems as though the ASA arm, those folks actually got better as the trial went on. I think that that's, that's really promising. Yeah, and that that is something that separates this, I think, from from other interventions. And, um, you know, this, this is not anything magical. I always tell patients we're definitely not regrowing anything. A lot of patients have sort of read things online that, hey, you get a stem cell injection and it makes your cartilage and your meniscus regrow. And people are disappointed when I have to burst that bubble for them. But at the end of the day, yes, uh, sort of changing the natural history and, and structural improvement, that's the holy grail. But we don't have that. Not non-surgical, but long-lasting pain relief and improvement of function. I mean, that's what people should and do care about. Is there anything else that y'all found that um, struck you as being surprising or perhaps you hadn't anticipated when you were setting the study up? Really, I think one, one reassuring thing that, so I wouldn't say that was surprising because we had hoped for that, but we in the title, it's the safety. So we, we followed patients pretty closely, um, serologically. So you know, they had blood tests at, at several intervals because we wanted to look really at any changes in CRP, immune globulins, because it, it is an allograft, and we wanted to make sure that the 
nothing bad happens, obviously. And we had done years ago a pilot study in just a few patients where we started with these um, serological profiles, and that was was deemed safe, and we had sort of outside experts looking at that. Um, but of course, it was only in six patients, so we we did that here, and and again, all the immune globulins. There was no really significant trend, and we did that in all groups, and we saw sort of the same kind of rates of of conversion in in saline as we saw with the the amnion. So that one of the first questions I always have when somebody talks to me about a new product is, well, is it safe to use? Because if it's even if it's super exciting, what it can do. If it's not safe, then I'm not interested. And and this is is safe. What, if any, is the role for uh, corticosteroid injection in, in, in the treatment of knee osteoarthritis in 2021 for you? So I still use steroids. Um, I mean, a lot of bad things are being said about steroids. And like anything else in life, moderation is key. So I'm not a fan of somebody getting 10 steroid injections, but I, I can't really say that I think one, two, or three do anything bad. But um, for me, really, injection therapy in the knee is sort of two parts. There's corticosteroid in one part, and that part is the patient who comes in with like a, a hot, swollen, really angry knee because they did something stupid this past weekend. And I, I think that truly the best to treat that joint, um, if it doesn't respond to oral anti-inflammatories and icing and rest and all that, is a cortisone injection. But cortisone ultimately doesn't last very long. So if what you have is a flare-up, then I think cortisone works great for that. And those are the patients that might come back in a year or, or two years and say, hey, my Cortisone injection lasted for a year. Of course, it didn't. It, you just didn't have another flare-up for a year. But then the other part, that's for patients who are not really much worse than they were a week ago or maybe a month ago, but they're worse now than they were a year ago. So their baseline pain just over time has crept up, and now it's at a level where they need something done. And cortisone makes like a temporary dent in in that so the only time I would ever use cortisone for someone like that is if somebody comes in and says, I'm about to go on this, let's say, ski vacation of a lifetime, and can you do something quick? I wouldn't do that too often, but I love skiing, so I make exceptions for that. Um, but those patients really need something that that lasts longer, and cortisone just doesn't do that. So for those patients, cortisone generally is not good. So in that other part, historically, we only had HA with all its limitations. And I use HA in my clinic almost every day. But we need something that's better, that works for a higher percentage of patients, provides more pain relief, and more importantly, lasts longer because patients get sick of seeing me every six months and and vice versa. So we've looked for something long-lasting and so PRP came out initially, and it was terribly confusing with leukocyte-rich and leukocyte-poor, but now we've sort of figured that out a little bit better. Um, and there are studies that show that it works better than HA. And now we've done this study, and it shows amnion works better than HA. It's still a little bit difficult to decide 
what's better, is it amnion or PRP? Um, because there's no study that compares the two. But I think if anything, and I do use PRP for, for patients, but the amnion seems to last longer. So I, I think if anything, that's probably something worthwhile discussing with patients. Like if you want something that has evidence to last the longest, then currently that's, that's the amnion. And that's how you can sort of differentiate between the two. But they're not covered by insurance. And most people do care about money. So um, I have many patients who have HA covered by insurance, and we start with that, and if it works, that's fine. And if it doesn't work, then we look into either PRP or, or Amnion, and, uh, and then I let them sort of make the decision with the data. Well, that's a great overview, and I appreciate your remarks specifically because it, it, it gives us a little bit of insight as to what your algorithm is. And it sounds like I'll go ahead and just commit you to a, a follow-on study of comparing PRP to ASA. So I'll look forward to those results as well here shortly. Okay. <laughs> well, maybe Anna would fund that. So I'll, uh, I'll ask them. <laughs> no, I think well, there that... there you go. The, well, there you go. Yeah. We need so much more data with, with all of this, whether it's BMAC or, or FAT or this just... Um, just to see what, and I'm sure there's not one the best, but at least to figure out what's maybe better for certain populations. I think it's great that we've got uh, professionals like you asking these hard questions and, and setting out to, to answer them with a rigorous scientific methodology. So congratulations to you and your co-investigators. Co um, that's going to do it. For this edition of the podcast, uh, Andreas, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to edu educate us yet about an, a, yet another promising orthobiologic therapy for the uh, treatment of knee osteoarthritis. Andy, thank you so much. This paper, entitled Safety and Efficacy of an Amniotic Suspension Allograft Injection of 12 Months in a Single-Blinded Randomized Controlled Trial for Symptomatic Osteoarthritis of the Knee, was recently made available as an article in press and can currently be accessed at www.arthroscopyjournal.org. Thank you all for joining us and have a nice evening.